Well, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll continue our series, which we left off, I think, four weeks ago. But we're returning to it today. And uh, we've got to that most contentious of passages in the book of Romans, uh, which we'll look at in in a few moments. But uh, I want us to read to it. You remember that uh, Paul has been, he set out the... uh, uh, that key verse in verse 16, I'm not ash- for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on to describe the unrighteousness of mankind and uh, the terrible plight that human beings are in, in their unrighteousness and godlessness. And Paul is involved in a description of how bad it gets. And um, I'm sure we can identify from what Paul says things that we see in uh, in the culture around us uh, because they have given up on God. So I want to pick up at verse uh, 26. And uh, Paul says, For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. It's searching. Uh, in its depth and in its scope. But Father, we pray as we come to study it together. Lord, open it up to us by your Spirit. May your Spirit help us to receive all you would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, four weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, we were going to wade into a sea of bad news uh, about the human condition and it's, it's that sea that stretches out before us uh, this bad news, uh, the darkness of the human condition. And it's a sea that will continue to spread out before us uh, until, and we don't emerge from it until, until chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So he's gone from verse 16 and 17. Uh, plunging into the depths, if you like, 
before finally emerging in, in chapter 3, verse 21. Well, we're, we're going to plunge into the depths uh, with Paul. And uh, Paul, what Paul is tr- seeking to do here is to show us that wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever background you come from, uh, there is no one who is righteous. Uh, not even one. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. And he's going to get to the conclusion in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have fallen short because all have sinned. All have become tainted. And the glory of man as he has been created, as we are thinking on Sunday mornings, has been lost because he has fallen short in his sin. And so there is no one on this earth who can stand before God and appeal to any redeeming features that you or I may have and say to God, I deserve your acceptance. Instead, the whole earth is silenced before this holy, righteous God, including these Christians because they see the desperate situation that mankind is in. You know what Paul is doing is he is uh, painting the reality of the human condition in all its stark blackness uh, in order that the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, can be seen most clearly. I've used this image before but it's rather like a jeweler who, when he wants to show the scattered light of a diamond, you go into the jeweler shop, uh, what does the jeweler do to show you a diamond? Well, he gets out his black cloth and he lays it out on the counter in front of you so that he can then put the diamonds on the, on the surface and it, against the blackness, uh, the beauty of the diamonds shines. And in the same way, that's what Paul is kind of doing here. He lays out the blackness of the human condition in order to bring to attention the sheer brilliance and glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by which all who would be saved can be saved. Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ can you be saved. And so what Paul is doing here is showing the complete absence of righteousness in mankind without which no one can see God. So you see then that the righteousness that God provides in Jesus Christ, as we've seen in uh, chapter 1 verse 17, that righteousness can now be seen in all its glory. So last time we we looked at this passage, uh, the earlier parts of it, we began to look at the human condition. And we saw that man... Mankind is is without excuse, since the whole of creation speaks of God, speaks of his divine attributes. If you look at uh, verse 21 of chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, 
and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. That in spite of this testimony that the universe gives to the existence of God and how great he is, uh, yet man decides not to honor him, not to give thanks to him. And so because of his unrighteousness, or people's unrighteousness, people kind of make a trade. They trade one thing for another and exchange. And so verse 23 says, And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so, therefore, they begin to live a lie. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the great tragedy of the human condition. The human beings, instead of having the glory of God and desiring the glory of God, they'd much rather worship a creature. And in Paul's time, they would literally have statues of people, or weird animal people composites. And they would bow down and worship these things. But it needn't be limited merely to to physical representations. There's anything, any created thing that you and I could latch hold of. An idea, an ideology, a a principle of life, whatever it is. If it's avoiding God... It is a a created thing. And mankind, human beings, want to worship created things all the time instead of the one true God. And so you live a lie. That's what Paul is saying. Well, Paul's not finished there. And um, in in some ways we've only got uh, knee-deep in this uh, dark ocean of sin. And now we're going to go deeper. As we come to verse 26. And the first thing I want to do this afternoon is talk to you about a repeated phrase that comes up. God gave them up. God gave them up. We've seen that once already. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. But now also in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to to have been done. Now this is all connected back to the first thing that he says after speaking about the gospel in verses 16 and 17. Because in verse 18 he says... For the wrath of God is being revealed. Now notice that interesting tense there. The wrath of God is being revealed. Just remember for what we said last time. I know it's four weeks ago, but let me just remind you. John Murray, who wrote on this passage uh, says this, that uh, the wrath of God is, is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. A holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. In other words, this is God's uh, disposition against sin. 
And the question is, when is that wrath being revealed? And many of us might think of it in terms of uh, a, a climactic event at the end of history. So Jesus Christ comes again, and the wrath of God comes, the judgment comes. And that's certainly true. But Paul is making a different point here. Paul is saying, the wrath of God is currently being revealed. It's a present continuous sense. It was happening in Paul's time, and it's happening in our time. That God's wrath is being shown and being revealed. Now how so? To answer that, you need to keep an eye on what Paul says God has already done and continues to do. It's this phrase. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind. Now just think about that for a minute. What's the sign of the wrath of God being visited on a society? Not, can I suggest, a sequence of Hollywood-style disasters. Like aliens are coming and destroying everything, or earthquakes, or climate change, or something like that. Not that. That's not what the wrath of God, how the wrath of God is coming. Rather, the wrath of God is revealed in letting men and women, boys and girls, do what they want. Isn't that interesting? God gives them up to do all these things. There couldn't be a that's a bigger contrast between the way of the world and the way of Jesus Christ. Now, you remember Jesus and his words in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was about to die. And in the prayer he was, you know, in the midst of all his suffering and all his anticipated suffering on the cross. And he's asking his father if there's any way out of what was about to happen to him. But in the end, he says to his father in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Not my will, but yours be done. So here, here's Jesus in the midst of all that suffering. The holy son of God in the midst of a, an unrighteous people. He's already had to endure a great deal. And he's got much more to, to endure on the cross. And you might think that Jesus might be justified in wallowing a little bit in a, in a bit of self-pity. And maybe say to his father, let me do what I want for a little bit, father. Maybe I could just kind of duck out for a little while. But no, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Contrast that in general, with mankind in general, and its unrighteousness. It, it completely reverses that, those words of Jesus, doesn't it? Because the world says, not your will, but mine be done. Not your will, but mine be done. And what does God say about that? He says, well, go and do it. God gives them over to it. And friends, this 
This ought to make us tremble as we meet this afternoon. In our society, which on the one hand increasingly sees references to God as irrelevant and dangerous, and which on the other side promotes personal autonomous freedom in all kinds of ways, uh, is that a society that's having the best of times? Or is it a society that's having the wrath of God visited upon them? Now there are two ways that mankind is given up by God. Uh, these are the ways of the heart and the ways of the mind. And each, each has its consequences in the way that we act. So let me just deal with the first of these. The passions of the heart. You see that in verses 24 and 26. God gives them over, verse 26, to dishonorable passions. And these are not good passions. Human hearts full of passions, aren't they? But there are many passions within us that are not good passions. And what's been described here in verse 24 is lusts towards impurity. And usually impurity has a, a sexual connotation. And there are dishonorable passions in verse 26. And those passions of the heart lead to various kinds of sexual activity. Now I don't think there's any doubts about what, he's, what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about those passions driving people to give up heterosexual relations for homosexual relations. And friends, you know, this is a dangerous area increasingly for us in these days as Christians. It's not acceptable for us to speak in the way that Paul does here. That's what society thinks. And if you were to say what Paul says uh, in, in your own words, you may well be accused of hate speech because someone is bound to find it offensive. Uh, Open-air preachers get arrested for reading out this passage of Scripture. Some Western countries are beginning to view it as hate literature and not allowing it to be read in public government's own spaces. And if you just look at the, the current efforts to ban so-called conversion therapy here in the United Kingdom, where some people are trying to define it so broadly that even to read a passage like this is to try and convert somebody from sinful behavior, this is happening. Government is discussing these things. And so all this does is remind us that the gospel and its implications are deeply offensive to the modern world. You know, even just speaking about Jesus and his death and resurrection alone, uh, you know, people may find that inoffensive and perhaps a bit quaint. But as soon as you bring the spotlight of the glory of Jesus' saving work to shine upon the condition of the, 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 the darkness and the offensiveness of the human condition and show the human heart for what it is, then people start getting offended. Because it the gospel implies change and conversion. 
And there's no respite in what Paul says here, because he goes on to talk about these new relations, as in verse 26, contrary to nature. Uh, How do you define what is natural? If you've rejected God, then of course anything could be natural, because any definition is arbitrary. But Paul is clear. It's not simply because your anatomy makes it obvious what is natural, which it does. But it's because Paul knows how mankind has been made. He's been made male and female in the image of God. He was made good to reflect God's glory in his creation. And marriage between a man and a woman was instituted as a place where wonderful, loving, sexual relations can take place. And it's for that reason that Paul says that this same-sex activity is contrary to nature. Friends, this is what we're seeing in the culture. I think Paul is drawing attention to a particular form of sexual activity here, but we need not limit the implications of what Paul is saying. A society that's rejected God is given over to all kinds of passions of the heart that results in all kinds of sexual activity. Don't you find in our culture today that that sex references become a subtext to almost everything that happens in our society? Whether you're buying something, watching sport or TV or reading a magazine, all fueling the passions that are unrestrained. Passions which God has given men and women over to. Friends, there are consequences to this. And as we have said, not at some later stage, but here and now. Look at what Paul says in verse 27. Men likewise give up natural relations with women and are consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And here's the bit and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their nature. What does he mean? Well, I think it's this, that the wrath of God is found in unrestrained passions. And it's in the passions themselves that the penalty is to be seen. And friends, think about this. The passions that... Paul is talking about here can never be satisfied. This is why I think it's a judgment of God to be driven by passions. Fleshly passions. Because you can never be satisfied. You see, your passions will forever be a taskmaster that drives and drives you, and it never stops. And there is no rest in trying to find satisfaction and rest in it. Paul is later going to talk about how human beings, uh, Christians have been uh, redeemed from a, a, a master who is a slave driver. Well, this is the kind of thing that he's talking about here. He's talking about how the passions become an unsatisfying driving force in your life, and there's no rest. And there needs to be this constant, relentless pursuit of pleasure that can never be satisfied. And it's a terrible thing. 
It's a terrible thing, isn't it? To be continually restless, to feel unsatisfied, to never quite land at that place of rest. You've always got passion about something, but you can never find anything that's really satisfying. There's nowhere to go with it. That's the utter restlessness of the human condition left to itself. So that's one way that uh, God gives people up to their passions. But here's the other way. Uh, Mankind is given up by God in the way that the mind thinks. Uh, You can see this in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, it doesn't just affect your passions, it affects your mind and how you think. Sin, unrighteousness, affects how you think about things. You can't think straight as a sinner until God comes and gives you light. Paul is reiterating something in verse 28 that he said in verses 21 and 22. uh, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It all begins. It has its roots in an intellectual rejection of the truth about God. And what God, Paul is saying here is that when people reject God, to put it simply, they cannot think straight. As Paul goes on to explain, this has the most practical effect. Because in his own mind... Human being, a man begins to justify all kinds of evil. And look at this, this long list of effects in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And all of it is justified in the mind that has first rejected the existence of God. There's an interesting example of this in the Old Testament. Uh, One of the reasons that Isaiah was called to be a prophet of God was for this very reason. Uh, In the 8th century BC, uh, the people of Israel... Uh, The people of Israel had long since abandoned the true God. They were nominally God's people, but they had abandoned true faith in him. And Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21 says this. God speaks and he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness before light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You get that? Those who call good evil and those who call evil good. And you see, this is what happens when when a society abandons God. It begins to create arguments to justify all kinds of what Paul calls debased behavior. We only have to look at our TV screens and Uh, to see and hear the continual stream of opinion justifying what society wants to do in the face of God's word. 
There's a consequence to that way of thinking, though. And Paul says something really interesting here, and it's something that we, uh, that again, we know, and, and the Bible knows about such people. It is that they know what they do is wrong. We've said this before, haven't we? Uh, human beings have this knowledge of God that they sometimes try to suppress, but they know that they're doing wrong. But if you look at verse 32... You'll see here that Paul says that those who are given over to a debased mind still know that God speaks to them in the matter of behavior. They know God's righteous decree, verse 32. Uh, He's speaking about God's law. And they know that those who practice such things deserve to die. In other words, there's a penalty for such behavior. And what Paul is speaking about, and he'll come to explain this a bit more as you get to chapter 2 and verse 15. Uh, He's speaking about the existence of the conscience in the human heart. Verse uh, 2.15 says this. uh, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now what what is a human being... Uh, do who knows God exists but rejects him and who knows that certain behaviors are wrong does he cave in and say to God oh I'm sorry Lord I'm sorry Uh, no he doubles down doesn't he people double down in their sin and actually they begin to surround themselves with other people who agree with them and so this is why Paul says at the end of verse 32 They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, these people get together and they start justifying each other and encouraging each other in their sin. Justifying their arguments. That's the pattern of the minds that rejects God. You get together with people who agree with you. And together in this mutual approval society, you shout loud enough And you start trying to drown out dissenting voices. Well, friends, you're probably all thoroughly depressed now. Uh, And I said, I did say to you, we're going to wade deeper into the misery uh, of the unrighteousness of mankind. It all seems very miserable. Uh, Is is this situation without hope? Uh, Let me just finish off with um, a verse from 1 Corinthians 6. You might like to turn to it. And I will as well when I find it. 1 Corinthians 6. <clears throat> and you look at verses, uh, verses 9 and 10. And Paul says these striking words which uh, chime with the passage in Romans we've just read. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And it seems like a, a, a closed case. The, the case, case is closed, it's finished, it's determined. There's no hope for those who continue in that state. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul is not finished there. So you read verse 11. 
And Paul says, and such were some of you Christians. All of these people who seem like no-hopers, who seem to be lost and given over to their sinful passions. Paul points to these Christians and he says, and such were some of you. In other words, the gospel had come to these people who had become Christians and everything had changed for them. That they had been lifted up from out of the muck and the mire of their lives. They'd been lifted out from under the wrath of God. To be given a new life. And to bask in the glory of His grace. And so the wrath of God is taken away from them. How? Well, of course, it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who suffered on the cross. Who took our place, who stood in our place. And Jesus bore the sin, the penalty of the sin that is ours. So that Paul can gloriously say, and such were some of you. Implication, no longer. Friends, there's always hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always always hope for those who have lost their way. We're not to be people who merely critique the world. It's no good to simply take a conservative view of morality and argue against the world. We must be gospel people holding out the gospel of life to other people and placarding before them not morality but Jesus Christ whom God gave over to the cross for sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though the condition of mankind, human beings, generally in our society, as we uh, go about our business day by day, week by week, whether we're at work or at school or wherever we go, uh, these, there's always hope for people if they can but come to Jesus Christ. And Lord our God, we pray, you'd help us to be those who are willing to proclaim Jesus to all those who are lost in their sin and given over to the corruption of their sin, and the passions of their hearts and the debased mind. But Lord, always to trust in the Jesus who can save them. So hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.